This is Erin, Megan, and Kristen. We're sisters, we're biracial, and we like to have fun. Come join us on Damn Girl Podcast, and you're listening to History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 250th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Denise, 250 episodes. That is wow. Just wow. I love it. So today's episode features Hameji Castle, which was suggested to us by our listener, Jenny Watt. And this is located in Japan. So we're going over to Asia on this one. Yeah, so that will be really fun. So thank you, Jenny. And half of me wonders if you didn't do this a little bit on purpose just to see how much fun we would have trying to pronounce all the names. <laughs> yeah, we could butcher a few things on this episode. So we do apologize to any Japanese speakers for us butchering your language. Before we get into talking about this magnificent structure, it's just gorgeous. I can't wait to see it for myself someday. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Bree. Hello, Bree. Nagira. Hello, Nagira. Trey spells his name T-R-E-Y. Hello, Trey. Vincent. Hi, Vincent. Amber. Hello, Amber. Megan with an E-A. Hello, Megan with an E-A. Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Ronan. Hey, Ronan. Christine. Hi, Christine. And Chris, who you got to meet at the Polynesian. Yes. Hey, Chris. Welcome. And now, this moment in oddity. Pope Gregory IX was born Ugolino di Conti in 1145. Unbelievably, he was over 80 years old at the time that he became Pope. But that isn't what is odd about his story. Our oddity here is about a declaration he made as Pope. This would not be his declaration about papal supremacy, or that little thing he put into motion called the Crusades, or that other little thing, you know, the Inquisition. No, this has to do with his order that called for the wholesale slaughter of cats in Europe. He wrote the Vox and Rama, and this declared that cats were the instrument of Satan, and thus they were condemned. This led to a decree by Gregory that put a target on the head of every cat, especially the black ones. Now, as if this wasn't insane enough, keep in mind that the plague was on the scene, and many believe that the plague was spread by rats. And what kills rats? Cats! Now imagine you have a pope declaring that they all be killed. So the pope causes a massive reduction in those evil cats all while the real evil of the plague is allowed to take out the human population, and apparently the people of that time were okay with that. And that certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now, this month in history. Thank you. 
In the month of March, on the 18th, in 1834, the Tolpedal Martyrs were banished to Australia. Tolpedal was a small village east of Dorster, England, where six English agricultural laborers formed the Friendly Society of Agricultural Laborers. The leader of the group was George Loveless, and under him the trade union rapidly grew in the area. The workers had wanted to form the union after several years of reductions in their agricultural wages. The group declared that they would not work for less than 10 shillings a week. There had previously been a lot of unrest from trade union activities, and the British government feared that this group would launch the same unrest. They urged local authorities to arrest Loveless, and they did just that, along with five other men. The charge was that the men had made an unlawful oath, and an outdated law was cited to back up the charges. The men were found guilty and sentenced to seven years of banishment to Australia's New South Wales penal colony. The British government was less than pleased with the public reaction. The six men were made into heroes, and continual agitation by the public got the sentence remitted. The popular movement surrounding the Tolpedal controversy is generally regarded as the beginning of trade unionism in Great Britain. The country of Japan does not usually cross the mind when castles are mentioned, but Japan does have castles, and Himeji Castle is the largest castle in Japan. The magnificent structure sits at the top of Himayama, which is a point 150 feet above sea level. The castle is made up of 83 buildings and referred to as the White Heron Castle because of its coloring, which is a brilliant white, and the curved roof resembles a bird in flight. Today, the castle is the most visited castle in Japan and is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The site is also considered to be one of the most haunted locations in Japan, with stories of Akuku's Well, the Old Widow's Stone, and the death of Sakurai Jinbei. Join us as we explore the history, legends, and hauntings of Himeji Castle. A lot of ghosts hanging out at this place. So first, let's talk about the city for which it is named, and that is Himeji in Japan, and it's found itself to be the center of attention throughout the years. The city was established in 1889, but even prior to officially becoming a city, Himeji has been the center of Harima province, which is today the Hyogo prefecture. And this has been around since the Nara period, covers AD 710 to AD 794. The Great Kanto earthquake hit in 1923, and at that time, the Japanese government started considering whether Himeji would make a better and safer capital than Tokyo. Can you imagine if Tokyo was not the capital today? Of course, if it wasn't, then we would be like, oh, okay, that's so weird to even think about Tokyo being the capital. During World War II, the United States targeted Himeji because it served as an important rail terminal and it also had two large military zones. The attack would be devastating to the city and it occurred on July 3rd, 1945. Just after four in the afternoon, 107 aircraft took to the skies over Himeji and dropped 767 tons of incendiary bombs. The raid destroyed 63.3% of the city. But one structure remained undamaged, and that was Himeji Castle. God, can you imagine? You almost think that there must have been 
a dome of protection over it. Well, as we get into this, we will find out that the people do believe that. The site where Himeji Castle now stands was originally occupied by a fort, and that was built in 1333 by Akamatsu Norimura. The location gave a military advantage because of the high hill. Several years later, it was expanded to include living quarters. In 1346, Norimura's son, Satanori, demolished the fort and built Himayama Castle in its place, which was named for a hill upon which it sits. In 1545, the Kuroda clan was stationed here by order of the Kadira clan, and at that time the castle was remodeled and named Himeji Castle. The construction was finished in 1561. By 1581, a three-story castle keep had been added. In 1600, Tokugawa Ayasu awarded the castle to Akeda Terumasa for his help in the Battle of Sekijahara. It would be Akeda that would completely rebuild the castle from 1601 to 1609. This made the castle a large complex. Several buildings were later added to the castle complex by Honda Tadamasa from 1617 to 1618. One of these includes a special tower for his daughter-in-law, Princess Sin. So obviously the castle was built for defense and it was fortified with high thick walls, moats, and there were those holes for shooting out arrows and dropping stones. Probably did the same thing, dropping hot tar, that kind of thing. So I get a Japanese view of In Search of the Holy Grail where they're hitting their heads and making fun and taunting them. (laughs) That could be it. There are 83 buildings and 74 of them have been set aside as important cultural assets. These assets include smaller items like gates and move up to turrets, corridors, and even earthen walls. And some of these walls reach 85 feet in height. That was a lot of building to do back then, when you think that they didn't have the kind of stuff we have today. No kidding. The castle complex stretches over 2.6 miles in square feet and covers over 576 acres. So it is huge. That's 50 times the size of the Tokyo Dome to give you a little bit of an idea. Like most castles, there's a central keep, and it stands 302 feet above sea level. It has six floors and a basement, and this basement was used for lavatories, which is something not usually found in a castle. There are two pillars that are part of the keep, and they were made from wood. One of them is fir, and the other is from cypress. The first floor is lined with weapon racks, and there were once 90 spears and 280 guns stored here. The floor also has 330 tatami mats, leading to the nickname Thousand Mat Room. These mats were used as a type of flooring made from a core of rice straw and covered with a woven soft rush straw. And rush is a type of plant, for those who don't know. Stone-throwing platforms can be found on the third and fourth floors. The fifth floor has what are called warrior hiding places. These are small enclosed rooms from which defenders could pop out from hiding and strike their enemy with the element of surprise. In the Meiji period, which dates from 1868 to 1912, many Japanese castles were destroyed, but Himeji Castle survived. It was eventually abandoned in 1871. The castle was later slated for demolition, but an army colonel named Nakamura Shigeto made the effort to spare it. A stone monument honoring him was placed in the castle complex within the first gate, which is called the Hishi Gate. The castle was put up for auction and purchased by a Himeji resident for 23 Japanese yen, about 200,000 yen, or U.S. $2,258. Wow, what a deal. <laughs> no kidding. I would buy a castle for a couple grand. No kidding. 
The spider also wanted to demolish the castle complex so that he could develop the land, but the cost of destroying the castle was estimated to be too great, so the castle was spared yet again. Hameji Castle has managed to survive intact for 400 years, so not only did it avoid those demolitions, but it's also survived the bombings that hit the city during World War II, and then there was the Great Hanshin Earthquake, which happened in 1995. None of those damaged it. Nearly everything had been burned to the ground that is around this castle, and yet it has remained. So as you were pointing out, Denise, it almost seems like it has this dome of protection to it. Well, this has caused many of the Japanese people to believe that the castle is divinely protected. A Japanese garden was added in 1992 to commemorate Hameji City's centennial. A few years ago, extensive renovations were done, which included getting the grimy gray roof back to its brilliant white coloring. The castle reopened on March 27, 2015. Now, as we were talking, there's these secret corridors that warriors would come jumping out of. Well, these corridors are also set up like a giant labyrinth, and they were meant to be that way so that if the enemies got inside of the castle, they would become hopelessly lost. And then the warriors that were inside would have the advantage, especially when they come jumping out, the guy, the, his enemy's like, what's going on? Where am I? And then all of a sudden, here comes this person out of a wall, and they can't run away because they don't know where they're going. There are still some tourists that find themselves lost because of these labyrinths. It, that would probably be me, so I'm definitely going with a guide. And this always makes you wonder, could this be why some spirits still seem to be trapped here? As we talk about spirits get trapped in mirrors and they're kind of set up that way with the borders on them and that the ghosts can't go past those borders. So it makes you wonder if this maze-like corridor, labyrinth, whatever, has caused some of these spirits to get caught because they're like, I can't get out of here. Very possibly. As we've discussed when talking about Japan on other episodes, the stories and beliefs around ghosts in Japanese culture take on many forms. In America, we often believe that people who commit suicide or were murdered are more likely to have their spirits haunting a certain location. In Japan, these types of spirits are called yurei. These ghosts are believed to be stuck because they did not have time to make their peace. Many yurei are female energy spirits looking for revenge, either because they were murdered or committed suicide rashly. Defeated warriors in Japan were often forced to commit suicide. The theme common to all Yuri hauntings is revenge. One such tale at the castle claims that a woman who was deeply wronged in life was held in a type of bondage to the betrayal that had killed her, so she haunted a location for more than 400 years. This is the story of Okiku's Well. Before we get into talking about Okiku's Well, this Yuri, we discussed this before, but there's two different kinds. A Yuri is a ghost or a spirit, what, what we would call in America a ghost. There's also Oni, which are demons. So they don't want you to get those two mixed up. But all of them are very angry and mean ghosts. So you don't want to get messed in with any of them. There's the Kiyohime. This is a young woman who was scorned by her lover. And this was a monk who was named Anchen. He grew cold and kind of blew her off. And when she realized that he had left her, she followed him to the river and somehow transformed into a serpent. And she went swimming after his boat. And Anchen looks back and he sees this serpent coming after him. So he runs into a temple and asks the monks to hide him so that she can't find him and hurt him. So they put him underneath a bell. 
Well, she found him because apparently as a serpent, she had a good sense of smell. I don't know if it was her tongue or what, but she coiled herself around the bell and banged loudly on it with her tail. Then she breathed fire onto the bell and it melted it. And of course, you know what that did to Anchin. It melted him as well. And I was just thinking with what you said, that was the epitome of a tongue lashing. (laughs) That's true. There's the Yuki Ona, and this is the snow woman. And there are many variations of this Japanese tale that are told. She's usually described as having white skin or wearing a white kimono and having long black hair. So what does that sound like to you, Denise? That sounds like a white lady if I ever heard one. Yeah, our lady in white. She usually appears in snowfall and glides without her feet being seen. So that's why she takes on this ghostly look. She just kind of glides over. She feeds on human essence and her killing method of choice is to blow on her victims, freezes them, and then she can suck out their souls through their mouths. Wow, that sounds terrifying. The shooting doji. This is a 50 foot tall spirit, has a red body, five horns and 15 eyes. And this is actually a demon of sorts. It's a legend that goes all the way back to the medieval period. And apparently the warriors Reiko and Hosho infiltrated Sutan Doji's lair. And they disguised themselves as Yamabushi, which are mountain priests. They were trying to free some kidnapped women. Well, this Oni greeted them with a banquet of human flesh and blood. And the disguised warriors offered Shutan Doji drugged sake. So the demon went ahead and drank some of that sake caused him to pass out and the warriors were able to cut off his head so that managed to kill him and they got all of the women that he had captive free there's the mountain ogress known as yamaba yamaba is also originating from the medieval period yamadas are generally considered to be old women who were marginalized by society and forced to live in the mountains and they also have a penchant for eating human flesh Among many tales, there is one of a Yamamba who offered shelter to a young woman about to give birth while secretly planning to eat her baby, and another of a Yamamba who goes to village homes to eat children while their moms are away. But these spirits are not picky because they will eat anybody. They sound really pleasant, don't they? Yes, it's amazing how many apparitions in different cultures prey on children. They're easy prey, I guess. That's true. I guess in nature, it's the a lot of times the babies that are in danger. Now, the other day we were at a cemetery talking about goblins, Denise. They have goblins here in Japan as well. And these are called Tengu. And they're these impish mountain goblins. They like to play tricks on people. They're featured in a lot of folk tales. And most of the time they're considered evil, but I think they're mostly pranksters. They're usually depicted as being bird-like with wings and beaks. Sometimes they're given a little bit of a comical large nose, maybe to make them seem not so bad. They try to lead people away from Buddhism. They kidnap children, start fires in temples, tie priests to tall trees and towers. So they're just really, again, pranksters pretty much. And people believe that these mountain goblins were actually priests to begin with who weren't doing a very good job. And so basically they were cursed to become these goblins. Huh. There's a bridge called Augie Bridge, and there's an Oni there, a demon. You have an overly confident man who boasted to his friends that he didn't fear to cross Aggie Bridge or the demon that was rumored to reside there. Kind of like that black angel statue that we talked about in the cemetery where the guy was like, oh, I'm not afraid of that. I'll go over there and touch it. And then he had a heart attack. Yes. So what happened is the Oni who was here appeared to the man as an abandoned woman. 
As soon as she caught his eye, she transformed back into a nine-foot green-skinned monster and chased after him. The man managed to get away, so the demon, I guess, decided to leave the bridge and said, I'm going to pretend to be his brother. Don't know how he knew what he looked like. And so he goes over to the guy's door and knocks on it late at night, and he's like, hey, I'm your brother, let me in. So they let the Oni into the house, and after a bit of a struggle, he bit off the man's head, held it up, and danced with it before his family, and then vanished. Nice guy. Yeah, their apparitions and fables are a little bit on the uh, grotesque side. And then we have the Akamanto, who is the red cloak. This particular demon likes to haunt bathrooms, particularly women's bathrooms. In one version of the story, the Akamanto asks women if they would like a red cloak or a blue cloak. If the woman answers red, Akamanto tears the flesh from her back to make it appear she is wearing a red cloak. If she answers blue, then he strangles her to death. So either way, you're kind of screwed. At least if he tears the flesh from your back, maybe you don't die. Now, what can you do to protect yourself from this creature other than run from the women's restroom screaming? There is no escaping. So there's you have to pick one or the other. And if you don't, he just drags you to hell. So you either get to be torn to shreds and bleed out, strangled to death, or you get to be dragged to the gates of hell while you're still alive. Exactly. Lovely. Right, so we have Okiku's Well. What is the legend that goes with that, Denise? Well, this story dates back to the 17th century. There's a well near the Harikari Maru, or the Suicide Gate, which is at the foot of the tower known as the Danyan. This well had a very ominous purpose, as its name indicates. Dishonored soldiers would disembowel themselves and bleed out next to the well. The well was used to wash away the blood from the suicides. This well is better known today as Akiku's Well. Akiku was a beautiful young woman who worked in the castle, and she quickly became the Lord's favorite servant. She was dedicated to him and was secretly in love with him. One day as Akiku was working, she overheard the chief retainer talking with another man about a plot to overthrow her lord. She ran to her lord and told him. It saved his life, and the chief retainer vowed revenge. Part of Akiku's job was to take care of ten plates that the Lord was very fond of, and he trusted her with them. The chief retainer had stolen one when he fled, and many thought that Akiku had taken the plate. She actually was tried for the crime and found guilty. Her punishment was to be doled out by the chief retainer, and the Lord gave him permission to torture her. The retainer committed horrible acts on her, including sexual, and then her dead body was thrown into the well. So you can imagine how she must have felt. First of all, she's in love with the Lord. She warns him, this guy wants to off you. And then he lets the guy who was going to off him torture her. I can see why she might be sticking around here. Oh, no kidding. I could, I would be very angry and betrayed. But that was not the end of Akiku. The first to experience her ghost was the Lord himself. He would wake up and hear her voice. First, she would sound as if she were counting plates, and then the voice would break into blood-curdling screams. It started to drive the Lord mad. Many other people throughout the years claimed to hear those terrifying screams in the early morning hours, usually between 2 and 3 a.m. The howls are nearly indescribable, and everyone who hears them is scared by them. 
The story of a cuckoo's hauntings is so well known that it has become part of the culture and is known as the Kaden of Banshu's Suryashiki and has been the subject of many movies and books. And basically, Kaden is the Japanese word for story. Then we have the Old Widow's Stone. The legend of the Old Widow's Stone dates back to the time when Toyotami Hideyoshi was a feudal lord in Japan. And that was during the 1500s. He had run out of stones when building the original three-story castle keep. An old woman heard about this issue with not having enough stones, and she gave him her hand millstone. This was precious to her, and she needed it for her trade. Because of her sacrifice, other people were inspired to offer their stones to Hideyoshi, and this sped up the construction of the castle. This legend claims that everyone can see the old widow stone today because the stone is covered with a wire net in the middle of one of the stone walls in the castle complex. And speaking of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, it is said that his spirit haunts Emeji Castle. Now, he was banging around and doing all this stuff, so they brought in Miyamoto Mashashi. And this was a samurai whose official job was to guard the Osakabi Shrine. And he carried two swords to me, so he was like a double-sworded fighter. And he was very efficient at what he did. And I don't know... what order this goes in. I don't know if he was dead and so his ghost subdued this other ghost or if he was alive and subdued the spirit. But he also is a ghost samurai that is seen wandering around this castle. He not only went after Hideyoshi, but then there's also Princess Osakabi and her haunting goes back to Himeji Castle back in the 17th century and he defeated that spirit as well. In one of the, one or the other, he was definitely in spirit form, and he was really efficient. He was considered one of the greatest samurai to ever walk the shores of Japan. So you've got those three spirits that were hanging around, at least at some point. It sounds like the, uh, the two of them are gone now, and it's just him. So I'm sure there's people who occasionally do see this ghostly samurai walking around with two swords. I can only imagine how terrifying that must be. Yeah, because anybody walking around with swords would be terrifying, but when you make it an apparition, it's even more so. A folklore story is also associated with Gembei Sakurai, who is Akeda Teramasa's master carpenter in the construction of the castle keep. According to the legend, Sakurai was dissatisfied with his work on the keep because it kept leaning to the southeast. He became so depressed when he could not get the keep to look right that he climbed to the top of the keep and jumped to his death with the chisel in his mouth. Some say he still roams the compound, biting on his chisel. Wow, that's a wonderful way to die. I wonder if he like fell down on the chisel and it went into his head or what? Well, that's what I was wondering too, because it wouldn't make sense to just have it. And so I'm like, ooh, that's pretty, I guess he wanted to go out with a bang, so to speak. Something. Now he's stuck with a chisel in his mouth for the rest of the afterlife. Fabulous. Japan is a country full of legends. Himeji Castle stands as a testament to the country's strong past and represents its promising future. Are there restless spirits here wandering in the maze of corridors found within? Is Himeji Castle haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, definitely a place I want to visit eventually. Oh, me too. We encourage you guys to check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. The intro for our show on this episode was three ladies who host the Damn Girl podcast, as you heard. And Megan is the one who contacted us, and she would written me an email and said, I found your podcast around Halloween of 2017 and have been obsessed ever since. Although I would never go into a quote-unquote haunted house, I can't get enough of real ghost stories and real haunted locations. 
I lived in San Antonio for two years, so I especially loved the episode about the Menger and Sheridan Gunter Hotels. In case it is not already on your list, another haunted hotel in San Antonio is the St. Anthony Hotel. I worked there for about two years, and although I only had two experiences, I love when people say I only had two, I felt energy there from the moment I went in for my interview. The hotel experienced its heydays from the 1920s to 1940s, and you can just feel all the people and events that have been through there when you walk down the halls. Another huge part of the haunting there is the fact that Walter Emmerich, the man who murdered the mystery woman in the Sheridan Gunter Hotel, came over to the St. Anthony and killed himself in room 536 before the cops could bust down the door and arrest him. And then she said the St. Anthony Hotel will always hold a place in her heart. So another place for us to check out there in San Antonio. And uh, clearly she seems to think it's haunted because she's had some experiences. And then we did the Cliffside Inn. I believe it was episode 131. So this was quite a while ago. I uh, got a message that we had a comment over underneath the show notes that we had done there. And it actually is one of the owners of the Cliffside Inn. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. So Bill, who is one of the owners of the Cliffside Inn, said, Greetings. My wife and I are the owners of the Cliffside Inn. I'm the Bill referred to in your post. I enjoyed the post and the podcast with my open mind about the experiences you described. Thank you. A few notes or clarifications for you. The Turner family, particularly Beatrice and her mother Adele, were not part of the elite society seen in Newport in the early 20th century. Beatrice was a keen observer and commentator on Newport society, politics, social issues, and world events of the time. She kept an extensive diary throughout her time here in Newport, which provides fascinating insights into the community, the world around her, and her own state of mind. We are fortunate to have many of her original diaries here at the inn. Although the family was somewhat reclusive, more of a response to Newport Society's lack of acceptance of the family into the elite social circles of Newport, Beatrice and her mother were certainly not oddities or peculiar in the community. They did not dress in black, and Beatrice was not forbidden to paint anything other than herself and the family. We actually have several original Beatrice works at Cliffside, among them one of her many self-portraits, two dual portraits of Beatrice and her mother Adele, several still-life paintings, and a lovely landscape. Beatrice's life story and her personal diaries do indeed provide a fascinating look into the life of a talented and thoughtful young woman, summering in Newport among the social elite whose perception of the world around her was burdened by the relationship her father forced upon her, a relationship that was by all accounts inappropriate. Beatrice held on to her Victorian lifestyle until her death in 1948, and she enjoyed many summers in Newport and both wrote and painted prolifically. So thank you to Bill for responding to us, and it sounds like we got some of the stuff right and maybe something's not quite so right. Right, which usually happens when you pass down stories. Also want to suggest to you guys another podcast that I found that I've really been enjoying. If you enjoy animals, Denise. Which I do. The Species Podcast. This is hosted by Mackin, and he does an awesome job with it. It's pretty new, so there's not a whole lot of episodes there, but I really, really enjoy it. So I highly recommend it. And he actually mentioned us on his most recent episode, which featured the Tasmanian Devil. We know you listeners love podcasts, and obviously we do too. Potter and Love is a podcast convention created by podcast listeners for podcast listeners. Join us on August 10th, 11th, and 12th here in 2018 in one of the coolest and most haunted cities in the country, New Orleans, Louisiana. There you'll get a chance to meet some of your favorite indie podcast hosts from shows like Twisted Philly, Pleasing Terrors, Hillbilly Horror Stories, The Unwritable Rant, Book vs. Movie, Generation Y, The Sofa Kings Podcast, and many more. There'll be live shows, panel discussions, Q&As, and workshops with podcasts from every genre. History Goes Bump is a featured podcast, and we'll be on a paranormal panel moderated by Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors. 
and you know we'll be doing some creepy after-hours stuff like a vampire tour. For more information about Pottern Love, go to the website www.pottern.love for a full list of featured podcasts, ticket prices, hotel accommodations, and more. And if you use our special code BUMP, B-U-M-P, you'll get 10% off your ticket price. We'd love to see you at Pottern Love. Now we have some Apple podcast reviews. First one is Chuska Mountains. Love this podcast. Five stars. History made interesting and fun. Love the way Diane and Denise deliver history rather than the same old dusty, boring way. I look forward to their podcast, but only wish it was a daily offering. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? I've learned so much, and now I have a huge travel list of must-see sites. Thank you so much, ladies, for providing this fun and educational podcast. Well, thank you for listening. And we have Rachel Pardo. Love this podcast. Five stars. I just stumbled upon this podcast about two weeks ago, and I can't stop listening. The content is so interesting, and the hosts are so fun to listen to. I'm a bit of a scaredy cat, but after listening, I've started looking into local ghost tours with such excitement. Good for you. Go do them. Yes. After sampling a few episodes and loving them, I jumped back to the beginning. I'm still on episodes from 2015 and have loved every episode. And as the host state, I followed them on Instagram and they followed me back within a few hours. So cool to know I can interact with these awesome ladies. Well, you are welcome, Rachel. And yes, we most definitely will follow you back on Twitter, follow you back on Instagram. You can talk to us and it's us talking to you. It's not a bot or somebody working for us. It's us. And then Spanky UT, really entertaining podcast, five stars. I drive truck for a living and spend much of my time listening to podcasts. This is one of the better ones I listen to. It's a great blend of history and the paranormal, two of my favorite topics. The host, Diane and Denise, do a great job researching their topics, and you can tell they really care about the listeners. In short, this podcast is Spadoinkle. That means it's awesome. <laughs> I like being Spadoinkle. Yeah. Thank you very much, Spanky. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the graveyard, Louis Urigijo, and I hope I didn't butcher that last name, but I'm sure I did. You have a chest tomb waiting for you here, and Brianne Sanford has got herself a garden crypt. So the grave digger has some work to do here. Working. Always working. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter.